Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST-135, the always August album, Largeness with Holes. It's been, uh, man, it's like been 60 episodes or so uh, since we've had Always August. Happy to have uh, them on again, and especially since we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Tim Harding's on the show. Has it really been that many episodes, or are you exaggerating? Well, I think it was SST-78, is Black Pyramid. Wow. Doesn't feel like that long ago. If I've if I've got my numbers right. Yeah, you probably do. Yeah, so maybe not 60, 50, more like 57, I guess. I was, <laughs> I was a bit off. <laughs> Anyways... It's a great interview with Tim. I I really dug it. I really, really dug the interview. Great guy. Yeah, for sure. Brent, do you got any spiels for the people? I have a ton of spiels. Oh, boy. I've got some podcast shout-outs, and then I've got the F section of Get This Shit Off My Phone. Nice. Okay, I'll start with the shout-outs. And these are mostly SST-related podcast shout-outs. As they ought to be. Okay, so there's this guy Chris DeMakes. He's in the band Less Than Jake, and he has a pod. Oh, yeah. He has a podcast called Chris DeMakes a Podcast, and it's about musicians discussing one song that they wrote. And he had on Bill Stevenson, and he chose two songs Bill did to talk about. Really? He talks cool. about the Descendant song One More Day, and the yeah. song he wrote for the Lemonheads, Steve's Boy. Oh yeah both about his relationship with his dad and it's a pretty tough one to get through any fan of bills should check this out asap it's quite moving and pretty pretty brave i would say of bill to put himself out there he also mentions there's a new descendants record in the works though but i would nice. i would highly recommend checking that podcast out or that episode yeah uh, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but Milo was on the One Life, One Chance podcast, and he talks about the New Descendants a little bit too. He also talks about a ukulele record he's making with a political bent to it. And he's also, if I understood right what he's saying, he's recording vocals right now over old Descendants tracks that were written in the late 70s, but they didn't end up using some of which predate even his time in the band. And, wow. then, and then, like, the rest of the band recorded the bed tracks for them sometime in, like, around 2002 or something like that. That That's if I understood what he was saying, right? The host didn't really follow up too much on that. Huh. And that's coming out? I don't know. He's just... I, I got the impression it was maybe a quarantine project that he took on. Uh, he can do... He, he has the capacity to do vocals at his house. And then the Spotinator was on the vinyl guide with Nate Goyer. Always nice to hear from Spot. And the interesting thing is some of the SST-related questions that Nate asks him, he declines to answer uh, because he's he's going to be telling them in a book that he's written. Oh, doesn't want to be his own spoiler. I guess so. <laughs> and then also, cool. yeah, I also mentioned this a few weeks ago, Van Connor was on the Watt from Pedro show. Watt's just been pumping out the episodes ever since the lockdown, and uh, he has a new app that you can download for the Watt from Pedro show. 
He always plays cool stuff on his show. Lots of unreleased demos, unreleased live stuff. New, I always get hip to a new band I've never heard before on his show. Van's interview is great. He talks about The Trees, Vallis, Gardner, which is a band he had with Aaron Stoffer from Seaweed. Uh, Van confirms in the interview, interview that he is a Philip K. Dick mega fan. Oh, cool. Watt tells a story about a date on the haircut tour with Slovenly and the Trees where they got paid $5 total and he split it three ways. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. And and then the best of the bunch for me uh, is this new podcast that I... It's not new, actually. It's new to me. And I got into it because of this Watt episode. It's called That Record Got Me High. And the hosts, Barry and Rob, are really great. They have guests on to talk about an album that had an influence on them. They've had on, like, for example, these are just some of the ones I've listened to. There's a lot of episodes and many that I want to check out. Todd Phillips from Bullet La Volta talking about You're Living All Over Me. Peter Prescott, Ryan, talking about Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets. Oh, neat. There's episodes on My War, I Against I, Double Nickels. No Means No Wrong with uh, Tony of the band Load. And most recently, Mike Watt talking about Blue Oyster Cult's Tyranny and Mutation. And it's awesome. It's awesome hearing Watt talk about it. Oh, yeah. So check that out. That record got me high. Okay, here's the F section of my phone. Are you ready? And it's long. I had a lot of, I had a lot of Fs in there. Okay, I want I want to call this one because last week was e ticket, the e ticket to ride, right? E ticket ride, it's, yeah. E ticket ride. This is take the F train, and okay. uh, that's that's a shout out to uh, uh, Duke Ellington and Dexter Gordon who uh, who made take the A train famous. But since we're on F, it's take the F train, man. Do okay, it. well, all aboard. Okay. Fastbacks. I love the fastbacks. I I listen to a record I don't go back to as much. The question is no. What I really want to hear is Kurt Block's Zucker 2020, which is a new remix of what I think is their best record. Uh, and Kurt's newer band, the Yes Masters, have a brand new 7-inch too, out called Lion and Tiger Fight. Here's one you'll appreciate, Ryan. Food, four pieces from Candyland. Great yeah. EP from 2012 we mentioned before, Ed from Ohio. Dude, wish, I've, wish, I've, wish. Got a, I've got a Fratry Records spiel coming up. Nice tie-in. Okay, good. Here's a recommend for you, Ryan, if you've never heard this. Fireburn, Don't Stop the Youth EP from 2017 and The Shine 7-inch from 2018. I've said it before, Israel Joseph I, who was the singer on Bad Brains Rise, should be back as the Bad Brains frontman, and they should do new music. This is his band, Fireburn, and if you check these out and you don't agree with me, you need to get your head examined. Uh, let's see, Flesh Eaters, Ashes of Time from 1999. A couple of these, this one's on the SS Tree too. On Christie's Upsetter Records, so great. Has three female singers on it this time, Erica Ware, Juanita Myers and Julie Christensen on vocals. This one's not on SST, so we won't be getting to it on the pod, but so many great songs. Two of their best, actually. Cross-Eyed Butterfly and Crucified Lovers. Can't wait to get into Divine Horseman in a few weeks. Field Day 2.0, the 
debut single from Doug Carrion and Peter Kortner's new band. Good stuff. Flying Lutenbachers, Ryan. Do you, are you a fan? Not really. Should I be? Yeah. I did the album Revenge, 1996, on Skin Graft Records. Good, noisy, no-wavy, jazzy, avant-garde rock. Yeah, I've checked them out a long, long time ago, and it didn't sink in, but this is a great excuse to check it out again. Fate's Warning, No Exit, proggy metal with insane chops and vocals. Two different vocalists, Ray Alder and John Arch, like them both. I like almost all of their albums, and this one's a good one. Probably not up your alley. The music, maybe. It's a like, a, like Rush or something, but the vocals would probably be a turnoff for you. Brand new record by a brand new supergroup, Ryan. Fake Names. Do you know it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that Brian Baker? Brian Baker, Michael Hampton from SOA, yeah. Embrace, and One Last Wish, Johnny Temple, Girls Against Boys, and Soulside, and Refused Frontman, Dennis Lixon, on vocals. It's on Epitaph. It's worth checking out. Did you ever check out that Foxall Stacks record that... I think Brian Baker's on that one too. Did you ever I check did that not, one? but you mentioned that one before. Damn, that yeah. would have been a good one to check out since I'm on the F section. No, Brent, you're riding the F train. But anyways, right. keep going. Brian Baker, of course, I should mention the band he was in. That's Junkyard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> good one. Filthy, Lu- Filthy Lucre, Pop Smear. This one came out in 1997. It's a one-off album. It's worth tracking down if you can find a copy. It's Phil Lewis from the band LA Guns and also Girl. I've always loved his vocals. Even if even if you're not a fan of LA Guns, you have to admit he's an amazing vocalist. Vocalist And Steve Dwar, who was a Thunders collaborator. It's got a great Thunders vibe to the whole thing. If you're into that kind of stuff, it's worth checking out. Here's another one you'll appreciate, Ryan. I did the Frank Zappa Halloween 73 box set that came out last year. It's really good. Brent, check it out. I I was listening to it today. I kid you not, and I've got the the Halloween mask and gloves edition. Of course you do. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Of course you do. It's really good, hey? Oh, it's great. Well, the Mother's 1970 box set that just came out is also really good. Um, it's got Flo and Eddie on it. If you like the Flo and Eddie years, that's a killer box set too. Okay. Let's see here, Ryan. Firehose Peel Sessions, 1987. A few people had mentioned it when we did the Sometimes episode, and I actually forgot I had it. It's got a great version of She Paints Pictures on it, which is why people were mentioning it to us. They also do Choose Any Memory, Making the Freeway, and they do the song Hear Me, and I realized... Remember we were talking about the song Hear Me and the video for it has a different Different recording? Different mix. Yeah, I think this is the audio on that video is from from this Peel Session. Peel Sessions. Yeah. And it's a great version too. Okay, here's one I'm curious if you're into, Ryan. Freak Accident. Self-titled record from 2004, Alternative Tentacles. I don't know it. There's a few later that I haven't heard. It's Ralph Spite from Hellworms, Jello Biafra, and the Guantanamo School of Medicine, who have a new album coming out, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Saturn's Flea Caller, Victim's Family, and Andrew Weiss's brother, John, plays some drums on it. It's good stuff. I'll check that out for sure. Uh, The Flesh Tones have a new single on Yep Rock that's just awesome. The B-side's great. It's called Alex Trebek. 
they're still going strong and a total string of amazing singles. They put out at least one or two singles a year and they're always good. Here's a band I've mentioned before, maybe in my 2019 rundown because they had a, a great album uh, called Dogrel from last year. They're called Fontaine's DC. They have a bitchin' new single on Partisan Records. It's really good. Great post-punk from Dublin. You'd like that, Ryan. Okay. Fontaine's DC. Yep. Got it. Far Flung, 25,000 feet per second. 1995 on Flipside Records. Yes, that Flipside, the magazine. I read about them in a Shindig Space Rock special edition. They actually have tons of albums. This is the only one I've ever heard, but I really love it, which is... <laughs> Makes me wonder why I haven't tracked down more of their stuff. They've got a really good Hawkwind vibe. Farfling. Oh. Okay. Can I keep going? Because I've, <laughs> I've got more. Keep going, man. I'm, I'm trying not to say anything because we could be here all night. But keep going. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying the F train. Okay. Field Agent. Reflection. Triple B Records. Super cool label with lots of great hardcore that I'm into. This is new. Brand new. Field Agent. Uh, Triple B Records, if you're into hardcore, check them out. And another label that I'm kind of obsessed with right now called Quality Control HQ. I listened to a band on that label called Frame of Mind with an album that came out in 2019 called Erition. British hardcore band, great stuff. I did the Fugazi Albini demos, Ryan. They've been on my phone ever since we talked about that In on the Killtaker book. Yep. Great stuff. For, here's an interesting one, Ryan. Forgotten Rebels. I did their Untitled album from 1989. It's not it's not Untitled. Untitled is the name of the record. <laughs> I've heard all their albums so many times. I decided to do that one because it's probably the one I've heard the least. It's got one of Mickey DeSatis' greatest songs on it, Good Times Never Last. What do you think is the deal with Forgotten Rebels? I mean, I think, think they're totally underrated. You never see them get mentioned anywhere in, like, the punk history books. Why? Yeah, well, I don't know. I've got I've got a fair amount of Canadian punk history books, and they're all over them. I just don't think that they got, um, they got out of Canada in the same way that, like, Teenage Head did. I mean, Teenage Head... I would say are way bigger than Forgotten Rebels and Teenage Head are hardly that well known outside of Canada too. So you know Forgotten Rebels are less known. Yeah. I thought maybe it had something to do with I mean some of their lyrics are a little sketchy, but I've always taken that as like tongue in cheek much like say the band Fear or something like that. Yeah, some of their lyrics are not very politically correct. Moving on. Uh, here's another one you'll appreciate, Ryan, because I know you're a fan. Fluff, Home Improvements. I feel like we were talking about Fluff recently. You mentioned a band that reminded you of Overwhelming Colorfast, and I said, yeah, I got into Overwhelming Colorfast because I was a big fan of Fluff, and they had similarities there. Yeah. I haven't listened to this one for a while, but I was grooving pretty hard to it, man. It's got oh. some great, great catchy stuff on it. Yeah, all the Fluff material is great. Um, and O's subsequent band uh makeup sex is also good i don't know that band but i know all of lawn oh yeah well that that precedes fluff right that's yeah. really grungy stuff yeah that's all of lawn's killer too 
check out the makeup sex. You'd like it. I will. Here's another one you'll appreciate, Ryan, because I know you're a big fan. I did Ford Pierce Adventurism. Oh, yeah. Ford's I, I, records are great. I, this one's really good, man. I, I like it a lot. Uh, for people who don't know who Ford Pierce is, he's Canadian. He played, we've mentioned this record a few times, DOA's The Black Spot. He played on that record. And I think Loggerheads, too. No, no, he was out of the band by then. They were a three-piece at that point, I think. He was in a bunch of Canadian bands like the Hard Rock Miners, Showbiz Giants with uh, John Wright from No Means No. I'm pretty sure he was in Roots Roundup and Junior Gone Wild at some point, too. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and Showbiz Giants, of course, is really Tom Holliston's band from No Means No. Sorry, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Fluid Clear Black Paper, 1988 Sub Pop Records. Listen to that back-to-back with all of Lawn, then you're killing it. Yeah, I like the Fluid, man. They're kind of, I guess, get lumped in with the 80s Seattle scene, but I feel like they're kind of underrated, too. Yeah, they they had like an Iggy vibe that I really liked. Yeah, yeah, you hear them get compared to the MC5 quite a bit, actually. Mm. Okay, just a few more here, Ryan. Flower Leopards, great gothy death rock uh, with a touch of metal. They released their first album in 1985 on Mystic Records. They have a bunch, actually, on Triple X, including a great one with Tony Adolescent on vocals. Uh, the only one I have is called More Songs About Dames, Dope, and Debauchery. It's a compilation of, of all that stuff. Uh, I did a band called Further, Next Time West Coast. 90s lo-fi noise, kind of like Dinosaur Jr. You hear them get compared to Dinosaur Jr. a lot. It's actually Brent and Darren Redmaker. Uh, Brent was in Beachwood Sparks, The Tide. He's now has a band called Gospel Beach that are really good. Darren was also in The Tide with him. He had a band called Summer Fits. Their band before Further was called Shadowland. Further actually has a split 7-inch with Fluff, now that I think of it. Okay, Ryan, and I'm going to end it off with something else that was in my F section. I'm going to implement a new game here. Are you up for a little challenge? Oh, man. I, I better be. I've talked about this before, but I'm going to actually make you play it this time. I'm calling it... <laughs> instead of instead of Six Degrees of Separation or Kevin Bacon or whatever, I'm calling it Six Degrees of Ginnovation. Okay. So, so you have to tie this record back to Greg Ginn in six moves or less. And it's it's pretty easy if you know who's in this band. And I think you might. If you don't, I'll give you some hints, okay? So it's okay. called... The Four Horsemen is the band. Nobody Said It Was Easy is the record. 1991, Deaf American Records. Rick Rubin signed them up when he was signing all the bands that sound like ACDC or The Cult, which they do. Apparently, ACDC is like Rick Rubin's all-time favorite band. So, Really? If you hmm. don't know The Four Horsemen, Nobody Said It Was Easy, you should probably check that out. Do you know the band, Ryan? I don't. Okay. I'll give you some hints. Their drummer's name, this is the lo- this is the band he was in when he died, by the way, is Ken Montgomery. Oh, Dimwit. Yes. Oh, no way. Okay. So then where where would I go? Do I go to the Dills? Where do I go? Uh, you tell me. <sighs> Who's Dimwit's brother? Chuck Biscuits. Oh, there we go. Black Flag. Boom. Okay. See how see how we play it? Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm not good at those games. You, you challenge you now. You have to challenge me next week, okay? Oh, that 
trying to come up with that challenge might ruin my week, but sure. <laughs> Six degrees of Genovation. Of Genovation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll do it. Okay. Whew. That's the F train. Yeah, man. That's a lot of that's a lot of Fs for me to check out, but I'm on it. I'm okay. in it. Can I hit you with? I'm gonna since uh, since we I want to get to Tim. Um, I'm gonna hit you with a few. Uh, micro spiels then real quick i feel like i'm uh, monopolizing the spiels with my get this shit off my phone segment is that what's going on here i wouldn't say monopolizing <laughs> i'd say uh i'd say you're getting a lot of shit off your phone for yeah, sure that's not even all of it man i didn't even talk about a lot of the shit <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna stop you right there yeah um okay I mentioned, uh, actually, you mentioned the band Food. I got an order in the mail from Fratry Records. Nice. Which is the label that that Food EP is on. Uh, I got turned on to this band called Knife the Symphony. And they are, they're kind of held out as a mid-90s touch-and-go, Amrep, Discord-sounding band. And they are. And uh, their records are great. Um, I'm digging them um, big time. Everyone should check out Fratry Records, though. There's lots of cool stuff on there. And the dude, uh, Jerry, I mean, it's a labor of love. Fratry Records, check it out. Here's here's a new release, though, that um, I wanted to mention. I don't know how big of a fan of Polvo you are, but I'm a big fan, always been a big fan of them. Um, I, I, I do like them. They... That one they put out maybe four years ago or so, five years ago, I really liked. Yeah, they, they've got some great stuff, and Merge is re-releasing their records, but um, two guys in the band, Dave and Brian, have got a new band called Silver Scrolls and a mm -hmm. new 12-inch, Music for Walks. Check that out. Okay. That, that's really good. And then um, for my third and final micro-spiel, it's a bit of an Always August tie-in because... You know, this this type of music is not my favorite, but I really got I really got into the record this week, especially after Tim's interview. But what I started listening to or not listening to, I started watching the uh, Grateful Dead documentary nice. um, that Long Strange Trip. Have you checked that out? Oh, yeah. 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 That's really good. And um, I'm not a Grateful Dead fan. It's just really not my bag, that type of music, but a great documentary. And I started watching it this week as I was digging deep into the Always August, and it really uh, it really worked for me. I also noticed, too, um, do you remember that compilation on uh, New Alliance called Taste Test One? Yeah. Yeah, Taste Test One, that's what it's called. Live from the KXLU-FM studios. There's an Always August tune on there. Oh, really? A, yeah, a song called Oh My Mind. but And there's liner notes. And this is what they say about Always August. I'm going to spiel this to kick us into History Lesson Part 1. It says, The August ones are a credit to their Virginia home, the ideal opening band for the dead. That's it. There you go. That's it. <laughs> That's the liner notes. It also says... The, like, what do they call them? The, the Always the ones? ones? The August ones. That's cool. The August ones. Yeah, yeah. And it gives their, um, it, I guess it, it gives their address too in uh, Richmond, VA, which is called the Always August Estate. 
Nice. Which is which is a PO box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, taste test. I ran into that compilation track for Always August. Ryan, can I say it? Please. I think it's about time we get into this record. Oh, nice. <laughs> History lesson, part one. I was going to say, um, let's start listening to Always August because MTV is a corporate scam, but too soon, maybe. <laughs> too soon. So where do we want to go? It has been like 57 episodes since we had the August ones on. We've got Tim. This is a really cool record. Like I said, like not really super up my alley, but I was digging it so hard this week. Yeah, me too. I mean, look, I am a fan of the Grateful Dead, and they're definitely influenced by the Dead. There's no question about it. Um, here's I'll read you this thing that uh, Lee West actually from the band sent me from this Encyclopedia Psychedelica. Here's the little bio that they wrote. This American band from from Virginia, to be precise, travel around the U.S. in caravan style, playing to open-minded souls wherever they may abide. The music they play is free-flowing and improvised and has its roots in the community bands of the 60s West Coast. Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Sons of Champlin. Live, the band plays long sets, often augmented by a host of musicians who join in on violin, flute, kalimba, sax, trumpet, or whatever fits at the time. Their two LPs are fantastic collections of 80s American psychedelic rock. The music is extremely varied, with the first album containing some of the more intense head sounds, such as Space and Out, the jazzy interrogation, and the superb countryish Oh My Mind. The second album sees yet more instrumentation and includes the fabulous Mass Man, full of guitar interplay and swirling melody. About Time has some simple lyrical messages. Isn't it about time we stopped living these lies? You already know what's right. Magic stuff. Do you want to kick it over to Tim? Yeah, let's do that. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Tim Harding. Tim, thanks for being on the show. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for doing this show. Yeah. It's cool. I like what you guys do. I'm really very appreciative of it. Oh, thank you. So we're on the Largeness with Holes album for Always August. (laughs) That's a mouthful of an album title, huh? Yeah. Let's start with the title. Why don't we start there? Um, (laughs) Yeah, like everything else, I mean, I love those guys so much, and... You know, there was a really profound connection for all of us. We lived in a house together for for most of the run of the band and, you know, then toured in typical SST fashion, which is, you know, 50 shows in 50 days and, you know, sleeping in the van a lot, just spending 24-7 around each other. Even um, off, you know, not musical times and not band time, we often worked together. There was one point where three of the guys, John Lee and Jeff, all worked at a very cool restaurant. John and I worked together at a restaurant. Lee and I worked at a Yeah, so, you know, we actually spent almost inordinate amount of time with each other, but right. we got along really, really well, and it was evident very early on. And everybody had... Um, 
such a great sense of a great curiosity uh, among these the four core guys. There was so much um, just interest in, and I think hopefulness that the world could actually be fascinating and wonderful. I think we all had presumed that when we were young, and then by turning towards you know whatever adulthood is, a lot of um, life looked a lot limited. It looked like there was less fun and adventure to be had, and it was all about sort of conformity to some fairly narrow, you know, fairly rigid sort of pathways, which didn't, none of that resonated for us. And I think finding each other and finding a real um, agreeableness. I mean, the guys were really just friendly and amicable and warm. And um, three of the four of us had had um, our parents split up while we were kids. And and, you know, so maybe some of a sense of, like, finding a new and creating a new family. I think there was a really a connection for us that we welcomed because it all felt beyond just like, oh, this is a guy I play in a band with. It's right. like, no, this is a guy I really love. I love being around. I love the way all, all those guys looked at life, lived their lives, you know, thought about stuff. Um, and you know, album titles, like everything else, were an incredibly sort of, you know, group-oriented thing where you'd kick around ideas. We were used to, you know, sitting up all night long and, you know, literally through the night talking about stuff as well as, you know, playing music, listening to music, but just, you know, mulling over everything, you know, this whatever you went through that day or the bigger questions, the bigger ideas about life and um, the specifics of uh, that exact album title. Uh, I wish I had a more succinct answer because I don't know. I don't know if any of us could remember exactly, but I, I think that, you know, the play on words of having the W in parentheses and was again like a sign of the sort of essential kind of optimism and hopefulness. And we'd all fought a lot of, you know, sort of battles internally and our sense of the world and society and politics and whatever. But, you know, it's an ongoing cycle to test everything around you. But, you know, maybe as a teenager, particularly, you sort of blow up everything around you which is good. At least you push against all of them and see what can really withstand your questions and your consternation. And, and after the, <laughs> after the scorch the earth, uh, you know, and just kind of smash all this stuff. And then you see what really remains and what really you feel deep down in your bones, what really feels like it really matters. And, um, I think the idea of, wholeness, you know, and not just that it's all full of flaws and, um, but that there's, yeah, an optimism about a life and we surely live that. I mean, it, it was a you know, easily the most magical time of my life. And I don't throw that term around that lightly just cause, you know, I mean, I think there's magic here. I mean, I, you know, 
you know, look at your hand or something for a minute and just go, yeah, I get two of these things. This is pretty remarkable. You know, there's a lot that is really incredible about being able to be alive. And if you're lucky enough to have a healthy body and a healthy enough mind and meet some good people, make some friends along the way and have creative adventures like music or whatever your, you know, your life, however it all unfolds, if you can, it's really pretty remarkable in, in many ways. And I think it was really reassuring for all of us to find each other. Yeah, I'm definitely in a place of particular reverie as we just lost our drummer, you know, one of the core four guys of the band, Jeff Douglas, um, just passed away about a month or six weeks ago um, at 51. And, uh, you know, it's still, it's, it's heartbreaking. It kind of always will be. He was a super sweet guy and a lovely, wonderful musician, but just a really sweet, gentle soul with a great uh, great sense of curiosity and an awesome sense of humor and a wonderful person who had a stroke at like 48 or 49 and never really recovered and uh, so a little additional kind of wistfulness on it all and you know been reflecting a lot on all that for the last six months I mean six weeks but I would say you know uh, I think for all of us in many ways I surf on the the goodwill of that relationship that we were lucky enough to forge together and the great adventures we had together. I mean, there's much of my life that still, you know, happily surfs on that wave <laughs> to this day, just the sense I know it can be great. Life can be amazing because it was, we had a lovely time and it's, it still is. I'm not saying that was, you know, the only time I enjoyed life by any means, but it was a real touchstone. I think for all of us that, taking responsibility didn't necessarily just mean getting a particular job and making a particular income and following particular um, standards, but it meant, you know, sort of taking responsibility for the gift you've been given to be, to be alive and uh, um, be so open and curious about the world, interested in it and interested in the people around us and, um, and then we just got fed this amazing ongoing diet of adventure and excitement. And, um, you know, SST was a magic place to be at that point, too, in the mid-80s. It was just remarkable. Well, uh, first of all, I'm awfully sorry for your loss. Condolences to the rest of the guys in the group and, and Jeff's family as well. No, thank you. We heard a similar sentiment when we talked to John that this was just a magical time with you all living together and composing this stuff. A lot of it, the first album anyways, was was written as a group. This record seems a little more maybe realized, maybe that's not maybe the word I want to use, but it's definitely less jammy than the first one. Would you agree with well, that? Well, and it's funny though too, it's... Uh, in, in some ways, it's almost more so in that just that there's um, Walton's Bluff, Crypto, Rasan, Roland Cat. These were just improv things in the studio that okay. ended up making it on the record. And 
you know, I think in that equation where you're trying to capture something that for us was this, you know, entirely organic kind of process of, of playing music together, um, whether it was in our house or at a performance, you know, it was all about the interaction between us. And um, there were no hard and fast rules about anything. We just wanted it to be good and interesting. And, you know, you can play it however you want. And we'd play these tunes at wildly different tempos, at, you know, throughout the years. And, you know, one time we'd play the song and it would be four minutes long. And the next time we play it, it'd be nine minutes long. And so there's all this openness. And I think this sort of interesting kind of transitional uh, record, because we were... Um, getting more comfortable at playing and playing together. We were all getting uh, more capable probably on our instruments and a just technical facility and, you know, so able to maybe try new and broader ideas, add more to the, the mix, you know, uh, the, the um, addition of uh, friends of ours who are other instrumentalists who contribute quite a bit to the largeness with holes record. Yeah, um, let's talk about that. There are a number of auxiliary players on this record. How about if I throw some names yeah. out you and you tell me about them? Well, I would love to. <laughs> okay. So we've got John Mila. He's back. He played on the previous record. He's on trumpet and also yeah. synthesizer keyboards yeah. and flugel. And He's an amazing guy, and he also, he and our percussionist, Steve Splash Matthews, um, sadly both left the planet um, about 15 years ago, and uh, in, you know, complete irony, or maybe it's still part of this larger arc of of this gathering of us, was they, they passed away on the same day, um, you know, and both totally unexpected um, about 15 years ago. Wow. And John was a really, he was in a lot of ways the catalyst for so many of the other, he opened the door. He was this brilliant trumpet player, um, you know, like a child prodigy. But he was so broad-minded. He loved all kinds of music, and he knew more about a wider variety of music than certainly at that time point when, when he and I met in our early 20s than anyone I'd ever met. Um, he played classical all his life and was a gifted classical player, but he knew all the history of jazz and was really into John Coltrane and Eric Dolphy and Ornette Coleman, Don Cherry, a lot of the you know much more uh, progressive and um, advanced modern thinking in jazz. He you know, he was into Elvis Costello and Black Flag, and he just did this huge, and he's a brilliant guy. He was an incredibly bright guy with a, you know, just virtuosic musical ability. And yet he loved us, and he loved the whole, he liked the Grateful Dead, he liked all kinds of stuff. Right. And I think, you know, he he and I knew each other already, and then when the band started coming together, he was just like, he was so enamored of the ease, the ease by which we, the process for us was in, in that it wasn't fraught with all kinds of 
bullshit, all kinds of, uh, you know, agendas and egocentrism and whatever. We were just uh, real joyful having fun and being really open and really clearly, I think, for a musician of his capacity to hear people, to watch and hear people who were clearly listening to each other. Because right. he'd go, you know, even a lot of the jazz settings, I mean, you know, maybe one guy is, but the other two guys are just kind of off doing their thing. And so he really connected with that, that it felt like a living thing to him. It was like, oh, well, you guys are, you know, it's clearly really being made up out of thin air in the moment. And it was exciting for him. And so he started playing with us fairly early on. And we were all, I think, um, you know, flattered as heck because he was a beautiful musician and a very funny guy. And he, um, you know, he would come in, we'd be playing a gig at a club and he'd come in in his tuxedo from having just left a symphony gig and playing two weddings earlier in the day. <laughs> and he'd come up on stage with us and, you know, with a beer in his hand and play, you know, an hour and a half with us just kind of drifting out into the ether. And, and he'd say, you know, at the end of the night, we're packing everything up and splitting. And he's like, best gig I played all day. You know, and it's like, oh, man. So he was wonderful. And I think he um, opened that door quite a bit. Other musicians started, uh, oh, well, if he's, a, and a, you know, he sounded great in the setting. He, he always played appropriately to whatever we were doing. And so kind of through him, the door opened up wider and uh, others of our friends started stepping in and we always welcomed the input. It was exciting for us and, you know, took the music to some new places and um, yeah, so it was lovely. And you can okay. hear that, you know, it was really becoming a, a more common part of even our performances. One of the tours we did, uh, maybe it was, even the tour for this record um, and we brought the violinist Steve uh, well at, at that point he was known as Steve Gatowski he has since taken on his birth father's uh, name Saeed uh, S-A-I-D and he is also a phenomenal musician and was a kid he was 16 or 17 I think 18 at the most when we all really connected and he also was a really like virtuosic for a young man. He could play beautiful, played really brilliant guitar as well as with us. Uh, he would always play violin and, you know, great ears and incredible gifts as a player. Uh, and he did a whole tour with us and John did a lot of John Mila did a lot of shows out of town with us. Our friend Tom Wall, who was also featured on the recording is a dear old friend of mine, a guy I grew up with, um, who lives in Washington, DC. And he would always, he's a very, very sweet person too. And he would make the effort and he'd try to catch up with us, you know, New York, Pittsburgh, uh, you know, obviously in the DC area where he was from, but if we were playing anywhere in the region, um, he would try to make a point of catching up with us. And uh, again, all these guys were completely welcome. You know, the door was wide open. Please, golly, yeah, you know, if you want to come in, please do. So he came down to Richmond to record his parts for this? Tom did? Yep. Okay. Yep. That is okay, right. you, you mentioned Splash Matthews. Yeah, what, what... yeah, another just sad. Again, he and John perished on the same 
day in you know, two different cities and two entirely different circumstances. But um, wow. he was like the <laughs> this raw kind of. I mean, he's also a super sweet and bright, wonderful guy. But he had this really amazing kind of primordial side to him. And it was just fantastic. I mean, he was the this caveman in, in a way. I mean, he would probably happily say, yeah, yeah, just um, stripping away a lot of the formalities of, you know, modern American or Eurocentric life and just living barefoot. I mean, he would be naked all day if he could probably, and not in a, not as a display as much as just, he wants to feel it all. He was really a very lively spirit. And we had known him some, uh, a bit here and there and his older brother. And we were literally leaving on a tour. Maybe it was our first one. I guess so. I think it was our very first tour. And he showed up on our doorstep the night before. And he had been on this, um, for like a year, the Great Peace March that started in California. This would have been 86 or 87. And he took like a year walking with these peace activists, um, if you will, uh, across the country from California to the East Coast. And he was just finishing up this year of walking across the country, and he just had a backpack and his kungas, and he showed up at our front door. We were, you know, delighted to see him. And we said, this is so funny. We're, we're just leaving tomorrow on our first tour. And he's like, oh, my God. And we were like, do you want to come? And he's like, oh, my God, yeah. And so he became a part of the band from there on out. Okay. And was great, you know, with that. I think that um, hand on skin, you know, kunga drums, like that thing is also primal and fundamental. It's like at the heart, it's this heartbeat of, you know, sonic expression, music percolating up from hand hitting skin. And it fit him so well. I mean, he was such a uh, earthy <laughs> guy that way. And it was a, a terrific addition for us. Right on. Okay, that leaves trombonist Brian Zabriskie. Yep. He was another, uh, he and John Mila had known each other um, going through the music school in Richmond, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, which uh, still has a really super good music program. And, I, I, you know, I'm not, um, I think it's wonderful because it cranks out a lot of guys and, and women, uh, fortunately more and more women too, who are, you know, remarkable at their skills, at their instrument. But when I was getting to know John and Brian Zabriskie in the early 1980s, they were this small handful of guys coming through music school who listened to way more than just jazz, which is sort of what you were being taught there. They were super broad-minded and bright and loved all kinds of music. And, and yeah, again, I saw music as a living thing and not so much as like a museum piece. And Brian was in this little coterie of really smart, really interesting and really fantastic players. He's a great trombonist. And so he's not only here, but he, he played with us, you know, now and then in performance. He was a very busy guy, even at that point, um, as a touring 
horn player and, and you know, I think it's made most of his adult life. He's been, you know, a musician for hire, um, playing with bands and touring and all that stuff. Um, so we were fortunate to have him uh, in the fold as well. So let's talk about the recording sessions, because it, it looks like the bulk of the songs were recorded at Radioactive Studio in Richmond, Yep, which is yep. a departure. Which, this is an actual studio. It's not your living room this time. Right. No, but it was close. I mean, it was a studio. It really was. It was, you know, uh, outfitted very nicely and nice microphones and a, and a good mixing desk and all that. Um, but it was a bit of the um, inmates running the asylum our good friends, Adam Green and Jeff Egg and our, gosh, you know, the fifth Beatle, uh, Kirk Henderson, a uh, guy who was recorded our first one on his little um, Tascam 8-track reel-to-reel and was a, a dear, dear friend to us. <laughs> a totally great guy. And, like, Mr. Like Level-Headed, and, you know, while we're all dreaming about <laughs> all sorts of things that don't exist... He's quoting um, some baseball statistic from 1948, you know, with authority. And But he's a really a terrific guy, great guy, good sense of humor. And so Kirk and Adam and Jeff were great friends of ours. And um, Adam was, the, I think, one of the chief engineers at that recording studio. So we decided to go in there with him and he worked a lot with our, our great buddies and the alternatives as well. It was still very much just kind of like being among friends and it was a fancier, cleaner living room than ours <laughs> with <laughs> better microphones. And then, you know, the other sessions we did, it was uh, pretty enchanted. We had this lovely friend, Walton, who did the uh, album cover for this and the first one. Okay. Um, it was, you know, considerably older than us. And I don't even know what that means at this point. I'm sure he was certainly in his forties. So at least maybe 20 years older, like a generation older, um, than we were and was very quiet, but a really, a really neat guy. We liked him very much. And he had this beautiful old house out in the country, just about, um, 15 minutes outside of Richmond, um, right on a, in kind of in a, there's a field and a lot of woodland around there. There's a lot of beautiful trees. And it sat on this promontory overlooking the, the river. And it was just idyllic setting out in the country. And the farmhouse itself, which uh, was called the Sailor's Tavern and had been a brothel, I think, in the 19th century, it was a you know fantastic old house with wooden floors and high ceilings and it was wonderful and we spent great times hanging out there um, and even setting up and playing music out there and Walton was a great lover of music um, and started expressing that through these beautiful paintings and we loved his spirit to him and his artwork you know it's very you know a huge departure from a lot of what SST had been, although we were just huge fans of SST, right? You know, going into it, we couldn't believe we got signed to them because it was like the favorite label that we knew of. And then after we get signed, they're signing <laughs> Bad Brains and Sonic Youth <laughs> and all these amazing bands that we already loved, and you know, we're now coming over to the same 
the same label uh, was you know, just incredible moment in time. And, you know, these album covers were quite a departure from a lot of what had been on the label. But I'm so, you know, uh, forever thankful to the vision that, that Chuck Dukowski and Greg Ginn and, and a really a beautiful group of folks, Michael Whitaker, who passed away uh, this during this past year, who was like a promotional guy and was fantastic, and Ray Farrell, who did radio stuff, and these amazing people who were so broad and understood somehow that we fit in with them, because we felt completely, in a sense, that we did, even though the you know, the aesthetics wouldn't have been obvious that, that we would be compatible, but in our hearts, it was like, you know, we loved what that label was doing and how it went about what it was doing and felt thrilled that it, you know, was able to even eventually engulf us and bring us in and this unbelievably great yes. uh, opportunity. Um, but Walton had this beautiful farmhouse. We went out there and recorded, yeah, somewhere close to half or whatever of the record out at his farmhouse and half of it in a recording studio. And that lent us also to this funny decision where, and we, you know, everything was just an experiment to us. And we felt like kids in a candy store in many respects, you know, especially with the, opportunities that were afforded us through SST. I think we kind of felt like that anyway, because just connecting with each other immediately had this reverberation for all of us. It felt really good. We really liked each other a lot. Right. And so we just kept, you know, well, what about this? What's behind that door? What's over there? You know, how about if we stand on our head, whatever, everything seemed, you know, open to us. And so we did this mixing job in LA on tour Okay. Where we booked, you know, we were on a tour with SST, and once we got to Los Angeles, we had, you know, taken care of this ahead of time and booked time with our friend Phil Newman, who uh, was the bass player in Painted Willie. Also passed away. Yeah, also passed away, and also an absolutely freaking sweet, sweet human being. So we mixed half the record with him, all the stuff we had done at the farmhouse we did with him and cause we knew him already and he was a very, very sweet soul. And he had a nice little studio set up out there. It was very, very relaxed. And then we wanted to do half of it with Ethan James. Cause we were in love with, you know, double nickels and all those amazing Minutemen right. records and wanted to do, we thought, well, let's for a change, do half the, the stuff we had recorded in a recording studio. So he's got some, you know, probably cleaner tracks to work with and all that and kind of let him sort of produce it. You know, we're not going to, we're just going to sit back and say, whatever you think, Ethan, you know, and he was great. He was totally nice, but he was also, you know, nothing like any one we dealt with before. I mean, he was, he was in blue cheer. I mean, he was, a, he'd been around the block right. uh, in, in as a musician and as a recording engineer, and he played Hurdy Gurdy for movie soundtracks for years. I mean, he's a fascinating guy, but much more of like a, you know, let's get at it and get on with it. And, and we just kind of sat there for the very relatively short period of time. It took, you know, two hours or something to mix 
whatever we did with him, four or five tunes. And we just kind of sat there and let him do whatever he would know. And then, you know, that sound right or, you know, more of this or whatever. But for the most part, we're like, no, it's yours. Do what you think. It's all okay. Mm-hmm. And which was unusual for us, but also kind of cool. I mean, I think we'd always allowed anybody in, you know, it wasn't a closed circle at all. It was like our friends and musicians and SST people and whoever, folks we met on the road and, you know, it's like, you're, you're welcome in here. This is, And so their input was helpful. And, you know, it's like, well, we're doing whatever. You do what you do. And so it's a, it was a good experience. I'm glad we did it. And interesting to have done the record that way where, you know, we recorded half of it in a, a full-fledged recording studio <laughs> and got it mixed by a, a... It sounds like a cohesive record for sure. Oh, that's nice. Uh, that's very sweet. Yeah. I'm glad that's the case. I think part, yeah, the the essential element of it is the way that we were going to play was really going to change no matter where we were or what we were doing. And by then, you know, we were playing a lot and we lived in the same house and we played all the time. We just played and played. And so I think we were at least comfortable with the notion that, you know, that we could just play, we do that a, play together or at least we were up to for it (laughs) so yeah right okay there's one we're talking about your circle of friends now one more credit on the record to get on the get on the record here and that's katie gibbons who did the lettering yeah again absolutely great the great amazing letter oh she's such a sweetheart very funny i remember (laughs) while we were on the road somehow we got copies of this, I think. I remember the, the story is, we were in Athens, Georgia, for a gig that night. We got there in the afternoon, and we ran into all, and Bill Stevenson in particular, and who was hilarious. <laughs> he was so funny, and I always really liked him, and liked them. They were great. We played played with him in Toronto one time too. It's really fun. Uh, you know, cool. fabulous drummer. We were big fans of the, the later, well, I mean, all of Flag, really. I mean, you know, Damaged is right. a masterpiece, and is my war. Uh, but a lot of that late, and, and the process of weeding out was something, I think, because we all had a real interest in improvising and, and noisy improvising and whatever, and that was a super cool record. And still, when I uh, go back to and enjoy. And he was so great. And he was like, maybe it was our first time meeting him there. And we were like in a little coffee shop or something, a little vegetarian joint or something. And we ran into some of the, and they were like, oh, you're the Always August guys. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And, oh, hey, we're, you know, and shaking hands, whatever. And he's like, oh, my God. He's like, the lettering on your albums, man. I want to. He's like, I want to play with myself and look at them. Those are so beautiful. <laughs> Which was, you know, as, as uh, I think as high a compliment as uh, Bill could pay. And Katie uh, is uh, still a, a beautiful person, a dear dear friend and a, a beautiful soul, um, a great friend of ours. She um, spent several years as Jeff Douglas's girlfriend. But we, you know, regardless of that, whatever, wherever that specific relationship stood, she was a great friend of ours. And, and to this day, I don't think any of us see her uh, hardly ever. She still lives in Richmond, where I do. And I'm the only one of the band that 
still lives in, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, and that's really been the case for, oh my gosh, decades, I think, at this point. Um, but Katie lives uh, here as well and is a mom of, um, you know, some fine young men, and she's a wonderful, wonderful friend. And, yeah, man, she did beautiful work on the. Thanks for bringing her into the conversation. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, her lettering's awesome. Okay, you mentioned touring a few times. Yep. Let's talk about touring. So the tour out to Spinhead and to Radio Tokyo yep. was prior to this record coming out. Exactly. Did you hit it harder once this record came out? Was that the you know the big 50-date tour or whatever that you mentioned? Probably. I, I mean, I think so. I think in... Um, I don't remember when this came out 86 87 something like that i think by yeah yeah 87 was the one year we did maybe even five we did at least four tours that year oh wow so it was kind of like go on tour come back for a month go out on tour again come back for a month you know it was amazing and the record was start was doing really well like on college radio and or you know, and whoever else would possibly be listening to it, but it was making some way. Right. People were excited and interested, and so that and that fueled a lot of it. It was you know we were always game for it, and and essentially when back in those days, um, you know they'd do all the they'd set up all the tours through their global booking agency, and. You know, they would basically ask us, do you want to play here? Because they really, and we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, wherever. Well, we've got you again in South Dakota. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we just say yes to everything, basically. It was not a gig that they proposed that we wouldn't just say yes to. Would these have been package tours? Like, were you going out with another band? No, no, we, did, we never did any of those, um, which was great, essentially. I'm glad. I mean, we got to play with tons of amazing bands, including lots of the great SST bands and, you know, Meat Puppets and Firehose at the time, um, Sonic Youth, and um, our very first night of our very first tour was in Raleigh, North Carolina, playing with Sacker and Trust. And oh, we wow. just immediately was like, oh my God. I and they were super sweet to us. They really, you know, I think there was a great connection right away. And we, you know, uh, I mean, I love, and I love Joe Biza more than I possibly should, but no, he's one of my favorite people and favorite musicians, but they, they were phenomenal. And Jack Brewer and his, some of his later, uh, doing some bazooka. We, I, in my later band, uh, Hotel X, we did a number of shows right. with bazooka, including some shows when Jack had joined them up for a record and, uh, Joe Biza, actually, I wrote some songs specifically for him to play with Hotel X, and we did a record, and it never came out. Uh, I still have oh, wow. that tape of it, but about half the record was with Joe that we recorded in Los Angeles. And, uh, yeah, the band kind of got into a really weird place, and that particular recording never came out. Uh, uh, but some of those songs we still play. But so I love Joe and uh, loved Saccharin. And, you know, the very first night, Michael Dean from the um, COC was at the gig in the Raleigh, Crosley Conformity. 
And he also just immediately was like, oh, my God, I love you guys. And he became a great friend and advocate for the band. And, you know, that was the first night of our first tour ever. Uh, so we got a lot of great opportunities to play with cool bands and do some big shows. We did a Fender's Ballroom in Los Angeles with Meat Puppets and Firehose once, you know, for some thousands of people. And, um, wow. you know, we had some great opportunities to... We we had this one <laughs> one thing, and it's just so typical. I think of, of you know it. Uh, it's a great little uh, tale that that uh, speaks to a lot of things about always August and about the the moment in time and the relationship with SST. Um, you know, we talk with them fairly often on the phone, and at the you know as the conversation would we kind of get over the important points that needed to be addressed. They're like, okay, you know, we're having to actually hammer out some, you know, some sort of business ends of things or touring information. You know, they'd send us money to record. So we had to get, you know, logistical stuff addressed. And, and that would be the case, you know, with some frequency. And at the end of the call, it was like, no matter who you were talking to, they go, you know, and is there anything else we can do for you? And, I mean, they were just so generous with their time and their their money and their efforts and so eager to be helpful. And so it became this kind of, you know, this, I mean, you know, point of wonder and also laughing amongst us. Like, what is, what is up with these people? I mean, you know, everyone else in the world barely wants to give away a minute of their time or, you know, offer their support or efforts or something and here these people are just going overboard and they're always saying and is there anything else so at one point lee lee west the guitarist and uh who really in many respects sort of became the in-house band manager he took started taking care of more and more of just the business end of things and uh, which okay. made a lot of sense i think for him and for the band. And it also, we kind of got to this point where we are doing enough, you know, doing enough stuff, band related stuff, um, particularly whereas with SST, where they were concerned, where we kind of got to the point where it was like, well, let's, uh, you know, we'll talk about it together, but let's have Lee call them. So it's just sort of one voice and it's not everybody in the band calling them all the time about different stuff, but they, so they can kind of establish a relationship with Lee. So more and more this thing, we had all had our chances to, to chat with them and, and, you know, meet them on our first tour. And this thing about, you know, is there anything else we could do? And, and so, we, you know, I remember Lee at one point finishing one of these conversations and walking over to us. And he's like, you know, this thing about is there anything else we can do? Uh, we should come up with something. And it's like, so we came up with this idea. <laughs> We're like, you know, how about if we have like a, yeah, See if they'll arrange a uh, SST barbecue and invite them, you know, like 10 SST bands and we'll come and we'll play and there'll be a cookout, <laughs> like an all day thing and beer and people playing Frisbee. <laughs> and we just thought it was, you know, hilarious. And then, right. you know, we get out there on one of our, our first or second tour. It was our second tour, second, second or third tour. I think it was during this period, during the largeness with holes period. And we had our buddy, Steve, uh, Gatowski, Steph Said, uh, playing violin with us for that tour and actually had a caravan of, 
uh, a VW van and another car load of our friends who came on the whole tour with us, like 10 additional people. It was insane. 10 incredible people. <laughs> uh, and we get out to, uh, to Los Angeles, and very typical of the way these things would unfold, we would leave with much of a tour itinerary kind of etched pretty much in stone. But there were open dates all throughout that they were still waiting to hear back on this and da-da-da, you know. So things were always in flux a bit, too. 90% of the tour would be sort of set up. But particularly the Los Angeles leg of it, we would often be there for, you know, a week even, kind of set up there, and you could do shows in San Diego or up in Santa Monica, and then over in Long Beach and whatever, but just kind of be in the L.A. area for a handful of days. And typically when we would first get to Los Angeles, we're dying to see everybody again. We would drive directly to the offices and come in and everybody, oh, it would be very sweet. It would be so nice to see folks. And, you know, you can also get a lot of even important information passed back and forth and a lot of stuff taken care of in a short period of time in person. Um, and we would get, you know, we'd meet with uh, whoever was booking us, Steve Call or whoever was taking care of the booking end of things. And so we get out there and they're running through, okay, so we've got the, you know, the thing did come in for Texas. When you're on your way back, you're going to play Houston with so-and-so. And get it. And we got the barbecue thing going. That's going to be Saturday. And we're like, what? What? And they said, well, we've got the barbecue thing happen. It'll be Saturday. <laughs> what are you talking about? The barbecue thing you guys kept saying. <laughs> and we're like, oh my God, that was just like, <laughs> You know, we thought just uh, for a laugh, we were sending that up like, well, obviously that's not going to actually happen. We would love it, but, you know, and and they're like, oh, no, we thought it was a great idea. You, you know, it's this Saturday and we've got 10 fans. And we're like, oh, my God. And they were so sweet. It was at a, a very legendary bar out there, the Antique Club. Right. Uh, good, you know, decent sized club, probably holds 200 people or something like that. And had a black top area with fence around it and all and you know they gave us the well, we were still uh, you know I'm still here uh, 35 years later whatever still like I can't believe this actually happened and, you know Greg and Chuck and like you know bibs and aprons out there grilling corn <laughs> and burgers and, and we're like oh my god and they gave us it was so sweet they said well since this is your thing and your idea we left these two options open for you. You could either close the show at like midnight or open the show, which is like at noon. And we were like, let's open the show. Cause then we could just enjoy the whole rest of the day and not be on this like pins and needles. Like, Oh, we've got to actually play later. It's like, we'll just play and then have fun the whole rest of the day and hear all these great bands. Uh, which is how it worked out, and it was absolutely fantastic. And Universal Congress played, and Slovenly played, and Blast played, and Swang, and it was it was incredible. It was a fantastic day. Uh, ran into Mike Watt and, and Kira, and they had just left. He's like, I just got my. Um, my bass signed by Magic Johnson. I was like, no, are you kidding? And he goes, yeah, I just met Magic Johnson and I got him to sign my bass. And he said, and he goes, and Jim, you know what he said to me? And I was like, well, what did he say? He said, I've got one of these, I've got a Fender percussion at home. <laughs> Precision, but, uh, uh, you know, great memories from that day and right. typical of how we were just, 
they were so generous and so supportive. And, you know, we were probably in way over our heads and we were just like, like I said, all my kids just going like, well, how about this? And then they go, the next thing you know, it would be coming to fruition. So incredible time, incredible relationship. Right on. Yeah, and those tours were great. And the fact that we weren't on package tours was kind of nice because we really got to play with a huge variety of bands. And we also, you know, kind of more and more played a lot of shows where it either just be us or us and one other band because we like to stretch out and maybe play two sets or play an hour and a half set instead of a 40-minute opening slot. And we did a bunch of those too because they could be fun on the right night as well but we got more and more opportunities to you know to stretch out and yeah we you know we every tour we did there was a better guarantee every time and there started to be this nice rider in the contract about you know food and whatever just you know we wanted something we we started asking for vegetarian food just because you eat enough pepperoni pizza and whatever bs on the road And just to have like something that might be thoughtfully prepared and good for you, like nutritious. So, you know, each time, each tour, there was a step up and we were getting more opportunity to just stretch out and play longer sets, which really fit us much better. Now, you mentioned getting some college radio play. Yep. And obviously through touring. Tell me about this record. What's the hit? The first song on anybody's record is, you know, the one that probably gets the most airplay. And For sure. I think we put Mass Man up there. It was always fun to play live. It was kind of funky. We had this big horn section thing on it. You know, great, uh, typical, excellent words from John. I mean, but John's songs were this incredible bedrock for everything we were doing. And even on this record, we recycled two from a great punk band uh, that he had had prior with with Lee West, the other guitarist, um, okay. that was called Judge Dredd right. in, in the earlier 80s. And they were terrific. They were really, really intense and very, very good. And the tunes, uh, the last two tunes on what would have been side A of the vinyl, uh, Alien Nation and In the Dark, were both tunes that John had written for Judge Dredd. And... Uh we um, kind of adapted them for Always August. But his songs, I mean, you know, the two tunes that, in many ways, I would say the two that are my favorite by far on the record, About Time, which has to be said that way. It's not about time. (laughs) Isn't it About Time? Um, We probably played that song more than any other in the history of the band. We played that all the time, and it was such a good... I mean, it just had great... Again, great words, great delivery, and a really um, churning kind of relaxed but churning kind of groove. It kind of, yeah, you know, it it fit the band in so many ways. It was melodic and yet still just kind of cooking. And you can tell when you hear that one that that was a jammer live for sure. Man, it could go long and be amazing. It was really one of the things that, um, you know, not a lot of these tunes are bogged down with tons of chord changes and stuff. That wasn't the point as much as just having something more often than not, something we could really dig into live and um, were handcuffed by a lot of uh, structural responsibilities and, and could more just, you know, 
dive in and see what we could make of it each time. Um, and it was, yeah, that's one of the real sort of anthems of the band. We played that a lot and I always loved playing it. And, uh, um, and the other, I think is a really lovely composition on this record is the last tune. It's a wheel. Um, which we didn't play a whole lot live, um, but it's got a really relaxed feel. It's a really interesting little cyclical pattern of, of chords and stuff that, that John wrote. And and kind of the whole song plays out before their words, almost at the very end, and he does this one little verse. I, I think that's one of the most successful, to me, things um, over time from, that, from this record. But Mass Man is definitely one that was getting... You know, we hear from our friends in Los Angeles, like, oh man, they, you know, it was on morning rush hour radio this morning on the <laughs> on the way to work. I played Mass Man, and like, oh, fantastic! All right, we're still, unfortunately, a hundred and sixty episodes away from Hotel X. <laughs> no, that's fortunate. I'm glad there's so much amazing stuff to dive into. The, my God, I mean, the range yeah. of stuff that's part of the, you know ethos of, of what that label became is just this incredibly broad range of stuff that, I mean, who would ever, who else would have ever signed all those same bands? I mean, there's no, you know, it's really preposterous and fantastic. They were so, it was such an amazing time. And I think they just, you know, and there's the argument could be made in retrospect, like, oh, maybe they signed more bands than they, should have, and I'm sure for some people, Iris was one of those. They shouldn't have, but nonetheless, it felt unbelievable. We were so excited, and I think the legacy of it is, you know, it's man, it's hard to beat. It's not just, uh, you know, the little train that could. It's not just like uh, the story of a unlikely alliance of folks that grows into something fruitful. But man, it bore incredible fruit and you know, nourished a generation. And I think it's still nourishing tons of musicians years later, um, and even non-musicians. I mean, just people that can find something of real value in what was happening there at that time. And, and people really stretching out and trying things that they never could have imagined anyone would have let them try before. And For yeah, sure. incredible. Okay. Well, I'm hoping you'll come back in three years and talk to me about Hotel X. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the meantime, know, Brandon, if, it's, if it's as painful as this interview, man, I would love to, you know, I mean, it's always great. In the, in the case with Hotel X, we formed in 1992 and are still kicking major booty 28 years later. And I was going to ask, yeah, have a brand new recording about to come out. And I've been in talks over the last two weeks with uh, an amazing group in Zimbabwe of um, two Mbira players. The Mbira is a thumb piano that's prominent uh, throughout much of Africa, little metal tines that you pluck with your thumbs. And uh, in in uh, Zimbabwe, it's called an Mbira, M-apostrophe-B-I-R-A, and they're generally embedded in a large the kind of bowl of a calabash gourd. So a gourd that's really long, like a pumpkin-sized gourd, is cut in half. So you've kind of got a bowl that serves as a, a sound resonator. 
and you put the thumb piano down in this bowl and it projects the sound out much you know more prominently than would otherwise be the case and i got to tour a couple times back in the 2004 and 2007 with um you know one of the most significant African musicians of the 20th century, uh, you know, in my world, one of the most significant musicians of the 20th century, a profound activist for human rights and a, a brilliant songwriter and singer, a guy named Thomas Mapfumo. And he's still alive. He actually has lived in exile in uh, Portland, Oregon for, uh, gosh, close to 20 years, I think. And he's in his 70s. And and one of my great heroes long before I ever met him or played with him. And the, uh, one of the Imbira players, uh, Basil Makundi, uh, was in the group. And so he has been listening to some of our uh, Hotel X stuff, and he's contacted me um, and said, could we do a record together? So we've been sending each other songs. And he and his group, which is two of the thumb piano players and then a singer and a percussionist, you know, all acoustic but they want to join us and do a record together. So we're trying to work out all the oh, details cool. of that. Yeah. So life is amazing. Yeah. Is there anywhere we can send people that want to check out Hotel X? Uh, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for asking. Um, there, we have a Facebook page, which, however, I mean, it got set up as a group. So you kind of have to, you know, look for Hotel X, uh, on right. Facebook and there's a page there and you ask to be included in which you would be uh, happily included. Um, right. And there's a channel on YouTube um, that's got several of the records uploaded and, and then there's a, a lot of live footage um, of the band which has definitely taken on more of a kind of Africanness over the last 20 years in particular. It was always a little bit in the band but um, more and more, so much of the music, I know for me personally, and I think for everybody uh, in Hotel X currently, and and probably quite a, many of them over the years, the root source of so much music that we all love, you know, funk and blues and jazz and R&B and hip-hop and, you know, comes in hell, you know, rock and roll and country and whatever else you can think of. There's a major um, contribution from Africa in all of that. Right. And right. and I'm a huge fan of Cuban music. I was just down in Cuba in January working on a documentary film on music and Brazilian music, all the Caribbean, Jamaican. So the more we trace the roots back for so many, you know, of the musics we love, we just keep coming back to this incredible reservoir, this deep source um, in Africa. And, you know, the more uh, over the last 40 years that I have was delving into modern African music, as well as field recordings of more traditional stuff, which I love also. But, you know, brilliant, unbelievably cool music that Africans make and always have. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and that's been a, a major force in the band and more and more it's sort of overtly reflected, although it's not, I mean, you know, you could come and hear the band and really go, I don't know what I'm hearing, but you know, I, I like it, but there's, it's still a big stew pot. There's all kinds of stuff in there. I mean, everybody is sure. more than welcome to bring, you know, whatever sensibilities on every, on every given night that they want to, to the music. And, um, 
you know, a lot of the rhythms have a fairly obvious um, derivation from uh, the polyrhythms of Africa and the Caribbean and Brazil. Um, but, you know, there's some very straight up funk and um, stuff that's pretty raw and psychedelic and weird. And, you know, that's all part of the mix. Right on. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you so much. I really, uh, I hope it is evident. I enjoy so much. It's a chance to to feel like I'm actually visiting with my dear friends (laughs) who aren't here in body right now, but who are very much in my heart and mind uh, and really great times. And, uh, you know, yeah, man, again, life is hard. It's incredibly challenging, but there is amazing stuff here for all of us. And so much of it flows from each other. You know, it's like that's the low hanging fruit for all of us is each other. And deciding to jump off a cliff with four of your great friends and try a bunch of ideas and have it land so um, beautifully in the ears and hearts of other people. um, You know, that's really fantastic. So I feel incredibly grateful and thank you so very much for your time. and, And I really love what you guys do here it's really super sweet i really uh oh, i appreciate you. you guys keeping keeping it alive and uh connecting people to uh so much great music thanks man really appreciate that absolutely take care tim hey you too brent i appreciate it right on thanks tim i i just loved his positivity his optimism all the appreciation that he had for for life, his friends, the music. It was a, a nice change from everything that's going on these days, I must say. It was a great interview. I loved it. Yeah, for sure. And if, you know, I think if I'm remembering right, like John Kiefer, when we interviewed him on episode 78, you know, it was kind of the same vibe. Just... Yeah. You can you could tell these guys were absolute best friends, and that this yeah. was you know a really uh, great time in their lives, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Considering some of there's some pretty heavy subject matter too in that interview, I was kind of taken aback by how many people we talked about that are have passed away. John Mila and Steve Splash Matthews passed away on the same day. Yeah, that's uh, bizarre. Phil Newman has passed away. Michael Whitaker, Jeff Douglas, uh, their drummer, passed away six months ago, I think he said. Or, sorry, six weeks ago. Six. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I what a, a standout for me was I really want to hear this unreleased Hotel X record that he did with Joe Biza. Oh, yeah. That'd be so cool. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the record? Sure, man. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, I'll start us off with this all-music review from John Dugan. On their second release, this Virginia-based non-tet continues to explore a genre that hip 70s rock crits pejoratively dubbed jazz rock. But fear not, this is no Berkeley-bred, blood-sweat-and-tears chopsorama. It's more heady, swirling, quietly funkified stuff that only occasionally commands your attention. Hmm. Interesting. Can I give you a uh, a spaceman spiel? Yeah, where'd you find that? 
just in the SST catalog. Oh yeah, right. It, it's a good one. Um, here, here's what it said about largeness with holes. The life codes that Always August reveals on this album are the keys to a healthy psychic glow. From the stone groove of About Time to the triple deadbolt lock of Rasan Roland Cat, this album paints a startlingly whole picture of your life. Nice. Always count on the spaceman to deliver the goods. Yeah, man. LPN cassette. Yeah. And and CD for and... 13 bucks. <laughs> okay, track one, side one. Mass Man, written by John Kiefer. Great lyrics. Everywhere I go, I see the Mass Man. MTV is just a corporate scam. And I'm feeling like Custer at his last stand, but I'll resist the ways of the Mass Man. Definitely have, you know, John Gar- or Jerry Garcia's tone on the guitars. Splash yeah. Matthews on some tasty bongos. Tim's nice and busy on the bass. Yeah, I love the horns on this one too. Yeah, the horns and the turnaround are really good. There's one one point where there's uh you can heal hear the fingers on the string slide when it like it kind of just takes a breath, the song. You can hear the string slide and it makes it feel so so uh a lot like like a really live recording oh yeah awesome yeah jerry garcia used a lot of that auto wah sound when he soloed i think he used these mutron pedals they're called that kind of give you that sound sounds like maybe brian zabrinsky on the trombone solo it sounds like late 70s era grateful dead like shakedown street era both guitarists get a solo john mila i believe it is on the trumpet with the second horn solo. Tim takes a little bass solo. You can definitely hear a Phil Lesh from the Grateful Dead influence there. Track two, Walton's Bluff. This one's credited to Tim Harding. Tim says in the interview this was a jam they came up with in the studio. Uh, I like the way it segues out of Mass Man into this one. Yeah. Walton's Bluff, of course, is the farm host that they mentioned. He mentions it in the interview their friend Walton, who also did the cover art. And uh, it's written on the back of the LP, Varian, Virginia. And this would have been one of the tracks that was recorded out there and mixed at Spinhead. Kind of a bass-driven song, which is why Tim, I'm assuming, gets the writing credit. And you've got Steve Gutowski playing violin over top of it on this one. Yeah, the, the violin right away reminded me of all those John Luke Ponty records that I haven't listened to you for so long like the one with george duke and uh and all the zappa um collaborations i gotta get back into some jean-luc ponty i like him i have i have one record called enigmatic ocean i think that's really good Mm. i like his earlier stuff better okay yeah okay alien nation john kiefer wrote this one for the band judge dread that he had with with lee west I was trying to picture this with like distorted guitars played in a hardcore style because I'm assuming <laughs> yeah, right. I think Judge Dredd was like a hardcore band, right? Well, I think Tim called them as such, right? Yeah. It's a good song anyways. It works it, however it sounded in Judge Dredd, it works works good here mm-hmm. with Always August. It was a highlight for me. And then we close outside one with In the Dark written by John Kiefer. Again, 
This is another one that Tim says was a Judge Dredd song. Really tough to picture this as a hardcore song. I'm thinking maybe they just reused the lyrics or something. This track really stood out to me because of the, like, Tim is just killing it on the bass. And there's some very tasty congas on here. Yeah. This is another farmhouse recording with a spinhead mix, too. Okay, flip it over and we've got Crypto credited to the whole band. Another studio jam built around a, a guitar lick. You can pick out John Mila on some keys, some trumpet here. Tim's really grooving on this one. Sounds great with Splash Matthews on Congos. They really work well together. Okay, About Time, written by John Kiefer. Kind of the album's centerpiece. Seven and a half minutes long. Even longer live, I'm sure. Tim, oh, yeah. Tim calls it the band's anthem. I really like this one. The trumpet in the chorus is really good. Yeah, I was just going to mention the trumpet is very, very delicious on this one, too. Yeah. Okay, the next track, Roshan Rollin' Cat credited to the whole band again as by this point i was ready to take back what i said in the interview about this album feeling less jammed than the previous one because here we have another studio jam maybe some french horn on this one there's kind of some like guitar playing in this that kept making me think of keith levine a little bit actually too there's there's some synth on this one sounds maybe a little out of place yeah, it is a bit abrupt when the synths come in, kind of like on some of those HR records. Yeah. Um, I was wondering whether the name of this track, Rasan Roland Cat, is a take on Rasan Roland Kirk, yeah. the, the jazz player. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, yeah. Okay, and then the last track, It's a Wheel, written by John Kiefer. Tim says in the interview this is built, built around a cyclical pattern of chords that John came up with out at the farmhouse and it's a good way to end end the record. Yeah, I wonder if it's called It's a Wheel because it's cyclical. Hey, maybe. Nice, hey? Nice. I like that. Great trumpet on this one too. I was digging the trumpet yeah. on this record. I can tell you like it better than the last one, Ryan. Oh yeah, the last one, I, I wasn't that pumped about it. I don't know. I don't know. I was just in the mood. Honestly, like listening to Tim, um, it was just infectious. Yeah. You know, it really, really was. And I needed it, if I'm being completely honest. <laughs> yeah, no, he's got a great outlook on things. It was great having yeah. him. So thanks to Tim for being on. Yeah. What about this artwork, though? Hey, isn't that a mind blower? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really good artwork. The color palette totally works with it, too. Hey. Uh, yeah, it really works. And it's cohesive, too, with their last one which I like. Yeah. And the lettering fit. You guys were both just going bonkers over the lettering, but like it is it. so killer. I like it that. It is so killer, hey? Yeah. It looks like, do you think those are like skyscrapers along the right-hand side? Yeah, something like that. Ro and, and like fields. Yeah. And uh, fields or oceans and a sun in the distance. And there's there's tons of stuff you can see in this artwork for sure, which I'm sure is the intent. Yeah. And the backside is is really cool too, just totally psychedelic. Yeah, yeah, it's cool that they had this like, kind of like the Grateful Dead. They have this little community built up around them. Yeah, oh yeah, and it was all like, you want to come along? Yeah, <laughs> every anyone who was cool was invited. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, love that. And they toured like crazy too, man. Uh, yeah, Lee West sent me some 
some tour itineraries. I think, like Tim mentions in the interview, that Lee kind of took over as like the de facto manager or whatever. He sent me right. a bunch of global tour itineraries. He sent me some riders. He sent me like the band's like uh, hand drawn stage plot and stuff. Pretty cool. He mentions playing with Soul Asylum, Agit Pop, Tar Babies, Cowboy Junkies. He says they played with Meat Puppets a million times, which totally, oh, yeah. totally would fit. Sonic yep. Youth, Firehose, Zoog's Rift, Universal Congress of, which also would have been a good fit. Divine Horseman, Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, these guys could fit a lot of those bills really, really well because of just how diverse they were. And so in the moment they were, you know, they could probably like adjust the way they played the song or their set for the vibe of the crowd for whatever other band was on the bill, right? Yeah. Do you, That's awesome. I kind of feel like they're one of the SST bands that maybe gets, you know, mentioned when they talk about Gin losing his way. Do you think so? They definitely don't get mentioned as much as other bands. And you might be right that when people think that, like, I feel like Always August might get lumped in with, you know, the people who didn't spend the time that they should have in digging more deeply when they go, oh, you know, SSD started sucking with all those Zoogs Rift records and stuff like that. Yeah. They probably get lumped in with that, which is, you know, unfortunate. Well, Zoogs doesn't suck and neither does Always August. This totally nope. works on SST. Yeah. But I, I will say, though, like all of my Always August records are cutouts, as are like half of my Zoogs Rift ones as well you know i just don't think people um they didn't get the same type of audience although tim was saying like this record did well hey and in, in the college stations well they toured a lot man so yeah there's obviously they probably moved some units. obviously people coming to see him oh i think that they would be insane live i think it would be a great time yeah yeah imagine like a bill with them and the meat puppets and you know like, I'm not as big a fan of the Meat Puppets as you are, but I would have a riot watching those two bands together. It also made me think about how much I miss, like, I know I used to complain about how hard, how hard it was to go out and see shows, but, and I, and I need to go out more, but man, oh man, I can't wait to go see live music again. It is killing me. Yeah. Are we ready to do the ballot result, right? It's about time. Sorry, I had to steal that back from you. <laughs> Ballot result. <laughs> what is it, Ryan? I think, well, for me, that's it. It would be about time. Yeah. But I also like uh, the Mass Man. Yeah, I like Mass Man, about time, time, and Alienation are the standouts for me. But mm, yeah, we can do about time. Right on. Cool. Thanks, Tim, again for being on the show. Yeah, man. Hang in there. We we need you for the Hotel X episodes in a few years. We'd love to have you back. Yeah, and I already asked Lee West, and uh, he's going to be on for episode 193, the final Always August, the Geography EP. So look forward to that. Right on. Ryan, what's next week? Next week is a first-timer for us. It's the Glenn Phillips Band. It's SST-136, The Elevator LP and we've got a special guest Brent. Yeah, Glenn Phillips is on the show and I'm bummed that it's our only Glenn Phillips because I love him. 
uh, but I'm pumped because it's a great interview and I love Glenn and it's a good record so I hope everybody checks it out hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on Facebook Instagram Twitter Tumblr all at Mojack Pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.